Last episode, we talked about an exciting time for Alberta's two major cities, Edmonton and Calgary, who were both about to lose their long-term mayors and head into municipal elections fraught with political turmoil in a particularly chaotic time. What happened, for city watchers like us, was extremely interesting. Calgary's mayor-elect, the progressive Jody Gondek, will be the first woman to hold that office. Only two incumbents kept their jobs on council, and many of the new councillors are women, people of colour, and lean progressive. Edmonton chose former Liberal cabinet member Amarjeet Sohi to become mayor, the first person of colour to win the job, trounced four incumbents, and elected a record eight women councillors out of 12 in an election which saw the highest voter turnout in over a decade. This isn't me saying, isn't it shocking how progressive these western cities are? Many cities are more progressive than the provinces, territories, states, or even countries they exist within. In fact, I think a lot of Torontonians have looked at Edmonton and Calgary with a degree of jealousy over the years for what looks very much like the kind of civic imagination and leadership that's been sadly lacking in Hogtown. No, this is me saying that I truly hope we see an exciting shakeup on Toronto City Council, because we're really stuck. For over a decade, we have embraced a low-tax, austerity mindset, and we are very much seeing the result of this today. And the majority of councils seem to have calculated it's better to say no to innovation and shield themselves from possible criticism than it is to challenge the status quo and own whatever praise that earns them. Take the issue of legalizing and regulating multi-tenant housing across the city. The move was predicted to create more affordable housing options. But a vocal contingent of homeowners with an irrational fear of what they perceive as wretched and dangerous renters seem to have fouled the waters enough to scare council from even considering this option until next year. Which happens to be an election year and not fertile soil for ambitious policy reversals. Even as this council tries to add tools to their housing toolbox, they've punted a very good one all the way into next year. It's politically safe, it's counterproductive, and exhausting to watch. Ontario municipal elections in the fall of next year are deceptively near. I hope we start demanding some fresh faces, ideas, and attitudes for ourselves, and I hope there are people who feel empowered to stand up and say, why not me? This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from an increasingly permanent temporary home studio, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we have a preview of our upcoming growing issue of Spacing Magazine, where I talk to Cheyenne Sundance of Sundance Harvest about helping marginalized communities gain food sovereignty and justice. But first, journalist and Spacing contributing editor Perry King has spent his career covering local sports and communities all over the GTA especially in diverse and often marginalized communities, where the story of coming together, fostering teamwork, and forging lifelong ties through sport isn't often told. Well, Perry tells that story in his new book, Rebound, Sports, Community, and the Inclusive City. Stand by. Perry, I wanted to begin by asking you, you know, how this project came together because I, I know you, and in, in a lot of ways, this this book seems to be the culmination of decades of of work, of reporting, of of going in and out of communities and talking to people. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, the, the background is that I've been writing for about 15 years or something like that. And I've been working for independent uh, publications and grassroots organizations and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I think part of the thinking was I wanted to bring some value to those stories. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to write about those stories in some kind of way. But I was also challenged to give it some value or to, to you know, push it forward a little bit more. Um, that took a little bit of time, a little bit of back and forth with Coach House. But eventually there was a conversation that, that me and the editor had. It was in the coffee shop one day and we were just talking about sports in different ways. Cause I initially pitched this as the history of basketball or something like that. Something fairly simple, something fairly straightforward. Right. And I was talking about my youngest brother. His name's Andrew. And, um, he's a really good basketball player. He's playing prep ball now in California and, you know, he has high prospects. He could be in the NBA if, if he puts his mind to it. Mm-hmm. And I think the particular phrase that I, I, I uttered was, I wonder what his future is going to be like. And I think that that sparked something. It, it began a fuller understanding of what sports is and what it could mean, not just for my brother, but um, for families, uh, for communities, and ultimately for the city. And it, it led to some tremendous research in different kinds of ways. But eventually, I wanted this book to kind of reflect all those elements at the same time, you know, in the simplest way I could possibly present it, but give people something to think about when it comes to how we think about our sports or how we think about our cities. All those things kind of intersect for me. Maybe it's more or less a reflection of the life I've lived or the work I've done, but uh, I feel like it's it's kind of a, a really refined product of what I would like to have brought forward. I, I think this, the story itself is a reflection of the neighborhoods that, that live here. There's so many of them, mm-hmm. and uh, every neighborhood is a story to tell. But really, it's it's about who lives here and you know, what the city can be and um, what it's been so far. And I've been waiting for a book just like this because uh, I am a fellow urbanist, progressive sports lover. And uh, I I think sometimes in the urbanist community, you can sell people on the idea of sports as a a public health measure or something like that. But uh, I think a lot of people um, in that field can sometimes stray away from the idea of why sports matter in a community sense, possibly because of you know, the toxic masculinity and other alienations, you know, gender racism within sports, and, and you do address those. But uh, you you also ask the question, why sports matter? And I, and I think you answer it quite well. And it, it comes down to um, well, what you say, sports in Toronto, it's a result of the work communities have done to keep people together for decades, cohesive, communicative, and playful communities. And I think that really, that's a powerful message in the book. It is. And, you know, I, I, may, I try to note this as much as I can. You know, there's a lot of NBA players, for example, that are in, in the league that are from the GTA. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the stories have been laid out for over the years. We, we talk about uh, Andrew Wiggins and Tristan Thompson and Corey Joseph. We do. But their stories don't begin with their time in college. They didn't begin at Texas for, for Tristan and Corey. It didn't begin at Duke for, for, our, you know, for RJ and for, and for Wiggins at Kansas. You know, it be, they started here. How they got to that moment um, is a culmination of different kinds of elements coming together. Their own drive, you know, there's, there's investment that they put down, thousands of dollars. Mm. But they had to access f- uh, facilities here. They had to go to school here. They had to get an idea of what they wanted to be here. Um, there's a story there that really needs to be tapped into that I think is a strong one. And it's really reflective because everyone uses those spaces. You know, I come from a neighborhood where 
there's a community center that is robust. It's, um, it's well used. It's really used by a lot of, uh, marginalized communities. A lot of people of color use the facilities, uh, because they had nowhere else to go. It was an option that was at their disposal. And, you know, people make the choice to, uh, to access these facilities because there's, I mean, there's different purposes. Maybe they want to make the leap, but I mean, realistically, they want to connect. They want to do something that occupies their time. You know, these are opportunities for skill development. There's opportunities to connect with, uh, you know, people that you don't live with. It's really just what sports is. It's an experiment where you're getting together with people you don't know, with people that um, have different ideas from you. You know, in these spaces, you get to learn about what your city is. And, you know, a city is a reflection of our ideas and how we like to put our imprint on it. You know, and if you really go to you know, pick a neighborhood in the city, and look at the resources, look at the spaces that they have. It's really a reflection of the needs that are there. You know, I, I talk a lot about Thorncliffe Park mm-hmm. and uh, Flemington Park in uh, in East York. You know, its proximity to downtown is really interesting. It's not an inner suburban, low-income community. It's a community in proper approximation to, to downtown Toronto. It's uh, a place with a lot of new Canadians, a lot of newcomers, uh, a lot of uh, people of color. But the resources are... You know, they're, they're finite. And it's, it's an interesting contrast because across the rail corridor is Leaside, which is probably one of the most well-off communities in, in the GTA, let alone Canada. And you wonder a lot about, you know, the people that access those resources all the time, that they, they thrive when they're able to, you know, be themselves and, and exercise themselves physically and mentally and, and connect with people in a really deep way. There's, there's something really about it that, that I enjoy, you know, the book is ultimately about these connectivities, these, these ideas of, um, of community, of, of diversity. And, you know, if we're trying to prescribe where our city goes, I think it begins there. It begins precisely in these, in these spaces, um, that are at our disposal. We, we need to create spaces like those. We need to encourage more connectivity with our neighbors, especially in a, in a post pandemic kind of era. I think we need to think more than just about ourselves or our own, our own individual well-being. It's more of a, a larger purpose that we all have to follow. Right. And, and, and in talking about these spaces, you document, well, access to these spaces across the city or across the GTA, they're, they're not evenly displaced. And uh, in fact, it, you, you call it the systemic racism in, in these kind of gaps in funding that you can see where you mention we, we actually have probably more hockey arenas than we need in the city, whereas in a in a city that is crazy about basketball coming off the heels of a an NBA championship in 2019 where we had all these promises that we were going to invest in this sport and just keep growing it you, you document a lot of cases where there's not access to proper basketball courts there are instances where the city takes down nets or uh you know they're broken they're just not repaired and uh it, it's pretty glaring in in communities that uh are largely marginalized, uh, that are people of color. And yeah, maybe you can talk about the, the imbalance there in the infra- infrastructure and the investment. Yeah. I mean, we can even describe it as a little bit of inertia. I mean, if we're talking about the legacies of our own colonial identity as a city, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a city that's very Anglo-Saxon. It's, um, you know, it's reflective of over a century of whiteness. On, to be honest with you, we kind of exist where the decisions that have been made about how the city has been formed has been based around those kind of basic ideas. But, you know, despite platitudes of multiculturalism and all these other things, in practice, it's become, 
you know, it's, it's not quite as equal in a sense. You know, we, we do have a lot of rinks around the city that are well-funded. Some of it is privately funded, to be fair. But um, if we're talking about public support for, for these kinds of facilities there, it's hard to find them. You know, I, I, I really try to, to parse out a really fair analysis there because the city works very hard. Mm-hmm. It works very hard you know, to put together a plan. Sometimes these master plans are over a decade long. So they require a long, a long roadway with billions of dollars tried to be earmarked. And, you know, if you really want to take a more focused look at the, the parks department and, and other uh, agencies within the city, you want to, you know, you want to be able to give them a fair, fair shake of what they've been able to execute. But what we've been able to see is a little bit of not much. Um, a lot of what is, what exists continues to thrive. You know, hockey rinks, um, our legacy arenas and those things are, are by to by, you know, fairly well. So we, we're kind of a city that, um, that has a hard time um, trying to figure it out. We're trying to do everything for everybody when it should be taking a more localized approach. I, I feel like the agency could look at its own plan, master plan. Um, I know that they've uh, planned out a bunch of cricket uh, fields, for example, but you know, considering the spaces that are available, they're, they're trying to be realistic about what they can actually implement. And maybe just actively listen to you know people that live in the neighborhood uh, or new Canadians, give them stronger voices in these consultations to, to form something that that can be really reflective of you know, not just their needs, but things that they're really passionate about. I really did enjoy uh, write, you know, writing about the, the Go Green Youth Center in Thorncliffe, you know, thinking a lot about, you know, this was a facility that was just a TDSB you know, field, and it was just used for all purposes. It had a softball diamond that was kind of, I wouldn't even say it was completed, but it was grown over, but it wasn't really maintained to that extent. But seeing local people, ironically from Leeside, but, uh, you know, elsewhere in the neighborhood in Thorncliffe, really put together, you know, really clever idea based on these uh, environmental plans to develop a cricket field and, and hence a multi-sport field that really appeals to a lot of different needs in the neighborhood. And if we're talking about adjusting the kind of uh, facilities and infrastructure that we need to, to support uh, these Torontonians, I, I, we have probably gotten to a place where we can be more flexible. You know, we don't know what the next craze will be. You know, cricket is not everyone's sport, so it's not necessarily the, the sport of choice for everybody. So we probably need facilities that are, you know, reflective of space. We probably need to set those things aside and, you know, try to be as flexible as we can, use technology to to create facilities that can do those kind of things. And we need to involve everybody. I, I, I thought a lot about what uh, Go Green was actually executing in, in their facility and, and with their organization. And, you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's youth run. There's a lot of teenagers that are there as volunteers and as, um, as workers, you know, really gaining the kind of experience that you would want to see, actually. Those kind of traits really appeal to employers, but also to universities. And, you know, it provides opportunities for them for growth. I think, you know, in, in one breath, we want to build a specific kind of thing. But we should also be building for the things that that people actually need. We can always talk about, you know, having more soccer fields or something like that, or more baseball diamonds, or or building more courts. But I think it's more about making sure that we're flexible for a future that we don't know. Right, and and listening to the local communities. I mean, a, a big part of the book traces uh, the history of cricket in, in the Toronto region, and uh, and it's interesting, and it goes back, you know, to the to the fifties and sixties, and continues on to this day. And it's growing and growing. And so, yeah, you write about how local governments, local communities are, are finally 
seeing the physical infrastructure, these new cricket pitches that weren't reflected, uh, you know, I often think of the, the, the lonely, never used tennis court in the middle of uh, the Toronto Island Park. I've never seen anyone <laughs> there. And I just, I look at spaces like that and think no one's playing tennis on this island, but that space could be used. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a growing community of people who want to play cricket. There's growing interest in the game, uh, for, especially from immigrant communities, or, you know, first, second, third generation. And so I think a lot of your book talks about how plans like these big scheme plans have to start from the hyper local, you know, from from community associations and, and parents. You write about the, the contribution of parents a lot. Yeah. And, and I should say something about cricket before you ask your question mm -hmm. again. Because, you know, I, I included cricket itself because of its connectivity to the past and mm -hmm. present and its possibilities going forward and the ideas that have been involved in its process. You know, at the end of the day, Toronto is a colony. Toronto, we're on Indigenous land. We are using these spaces, trying to keep that in mind, you know, trying to have a, a healthy building relationship with our Indigenous friends and trying to understand, you know, what, what, you know, that relationship is. But ultimately, when we have this land in, in our possession, we should be responsibly using it that appeals to everybody. You know, we should be developing facilities and, and programming that, that, um, that brings us together. And, you know, especially with, with cricket, I feel like there's a British colonial history tie that we, that I tried to bring in, um, bringing perspectives of the past and, and its histories with immigration and newcomer Canadians, especially black Canadians in the, in the mid 20th century. And just in terms of how it was executed as an idea now with, with Go Green. And there's some, some chit chat with, uh, with Adam Vaughn talking about his, um, his relationship with it. So there's, there's something timeless about it. I don't know if it's the most popular thing or the, or the thing that'll, that'll maintain itself for generations to come, but it's reflective of something that, that we should really be continuing to understand in the city. The city is changing all the time. We live in a city where people want to come to. That's just a human thing. You know, if we're talking about, the kinds of people that come to Toronto or any big city, we're talking about, it's an immigration thing. It's, it's a matter of who is coming here, what ideas and, and cultures they're bringing here and how we can make that work in terms of what a, a future city can look like. I feel like Toronto is a, a city of the future. It's got the inklings or the, the traits that show us that it can be a place that serves everybody. It doesn't have to be about one thing. It doesn't have to be about a certain culture or an identity. But it's about seeing these ideas executed in the same place as someone else, somebody else. I think that's so unique. I mean, there's very few cities in North America that could say that. New York City could probably say that. Maybe Chicago, maybe Miami. There's, there's really good examples of, of cities that encompass different ideas and are able to execute them. And, you know, Toronto's potential to, to be an accommodating place for all those kind of, uh, kind of ideas is, is rife. I think we're, we're ready to, to bring it on. We just have to turn the corner. We have to uh, bring creative thinking to it. We have to kind of open our, our minds to it. We have to make sacrifices when it comes to building a better city. Maybe there's a, a hint of better taxation or other ways of funding these things or, or bringing people together. But ultimately, we do have the, the small inklings, those little traits that can make us a better place to be. Right. Uh, like a, a lot of the stories in your book start in community centers, start in schools. Um, they start very small with just a, a, a person, a, a mentor, a, a coach of some kind or uh, a community leader who just takes it upon themselves. And, and I think the, the stories are very inspiring in their sort of bottom up structure. 
I mean, we, we like those kind of stories, but it does make me wonder, you know, we as a city, uh, you, you mentioned all the Canadian, uh, basketball products, uh, that we celebrate, uh, you know, we as a city, we love to celebrate, you know, the winners, the, the, the good news stories that come out of these things. But I, I just don't wonder if, if we're putting as much into it, uh, as we are celebrating the outcomes, which are largely seem to be the work of, uh, just well-meaning people putting in the extra time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, this is not just a, a, a way for understanding how sports is going to form itself, but it's really just about who needs these kind of resources, these kinds of ideas for, for executing a better city. You know, we live within an ecological crisis. We live in the supply chain. I, I guess you can call it a crisis now, but trying to figure out how we can withstand crises or withstand, you know, issues that are bigger than ourselves. Um, it does begin small because that's where we can begin to execute. You know, when I, when I say, you know, begin to get active in your community, uh, become mentors to children or to other adults, I, th- I think those are the seeds for, uh, creating communities that we've been, we've been having a hard time trying to put together. Mm-hmm. And I think that translates into action. That, that translates into things that I think governments can't ignore, you know, especially in a city like ours in Toronto that, is a little incremental. It, it changes a little bit in order to accommodate uh, the ongoing ideas, but also accommodate the ideas that remain. We need to give them better cases in order to execute those better ideas. You know, when I, when I talk about mentorship, it, it, it kind of folds into a bigger argument to bring on more legislation, you know, like, uh, like charters for play and, and all these other documentations that I talk about in the book. You know, there's, there's something that we can do, but we got to keep in mind that it's not just about what we can individually do. It's, it's a combo effort. It becomes, um, really difficult because, you know, you want to be able to, to do all these things and deliver these great things for young people, especially, but uh, it takes a lot of time. It's, it's probably why I wanted to chart this as something we think about for the next 30 years. This is something that we can actually trans, you know, transform into, you know, that it becomes a culture that kind of defines who we can be or, or we can become. We have these inherent values in us because, we care much about our, our, our children. We care much about, the, you know, the people that we live with. But, you know, there's, there's other things that we're also concerned about. We have finite time in the day and we can only focus on so much. So it becomes something that is doable, but is at the same time effective. And, you know, it, it, you know, for, for leadership and for, uh, I'm talking about our politician friends and, you know, people in our communities, activists, maybe. You know, there's, there's an opportunity to continue to, to speak about being better. There's, there's nothing wrong with talking about being better. We can't just talk about what's enough or what's good enough because we live in a city that's excellent. Our livability is excellent in, in terms of older metrics, but we can give, you know, the world a, a way to think about how to be better as a, as a global community of, of, of just people. You know, it's very small in scope, but I think there's something to translate to. In the book's title, Rebound, uh, I mean, it's, it's very evocative of the, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic crisis that we're in. I think that just managed to put a finer point on, on the point that you were already making. Uh, can you go into the effect of the pandemic on local sports and the culture and, uh, and the lessons that you drew from, from what you saw when sports were taken away? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was thinking a lot about a world without it. Mm-hmm zero sports or, or zero organized activity. Cause we, I did not know how long the pandemic was going to be still kind of don't know yeah. what the horizon is. I think 
thinking about how we get back from a place of real, of real difficulty to a place that we can all kind of work to is it, it feels reminiscent of, of, you know, post-World War II. You know, it, it does feel like a wartime. It feels like we're in a place where we have to challenge ourselves, but we're also doing things that can bring some harm. You know, I, I think a lot about, you know, what has been left behind in this, during this pandemic and what has been affected and how we can build up again. I, it, you know, coming from zero is tough. It, it is very difficult. Um, the rebound is, you know, really just about getting the ball back, getting back the, the getting back possession of something that we can, you know, control ourselves instead of having, you know, out of our control, really. Um, we, we really did fumble over the title a lot, but I think being able to exist in 2021 and beyond is, is nothing like what we could have thought about, you know, after 9-11 or after some other uh, short-term crises, even a flu epidemic uh, a, de- a decade ago, something like that. So I think as we understand that we don't just live in a, a time of perpetual peace, should get, should get us thinking about how we kind of exist in history or exist as, as a city and as people. We're not shielded from, from, from difficulty. We're not, you know, nothing, nothing is perpetually, you know, in a good place. We, we should always be striving for something. And I think the rebound comes when we are able to kind of, uh, have control of what we can do. And, you know, there's things that are out of control, out of our control that, you know, requires deeper thinking and it requires financial sacrifice. There's other things that have to go into it as well, but there's a role to be played in every aspect of life. And I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm inspired by things I've read over the last couple of years to kind of get me kind of really motivated. I was really motivated by uh, 21 lessons uh, from the 21st century uh, from the author of uh, Sapiens. He's a really interesting writer. And he wrote a lot about how, you know, if we're going to be tackling these, these big problems, and they're now translating into a local, a more local context. We have to work together. Mm-hmm. We have to continue to collaborate. We have to continue to bring forward ideas. We need to continue to to execute in some kind of way, in order to you know, stay away from from that apocalypse that I, th- I feared initially in my uh, initial inquiries. So I, th- I, th- I think we're kind of, I don't know, we're suited to do it. I, I think we know that we can. I don't know what limits us yet. I think we still can uh, continue to challenge ourselves and, and, you know, have conversations with people, not even just the people that we know, but, you know, people that have different ideas in our neighborhoods. I mean, this is definitely true. We, we definitely, I definitely know there's uh, people with different ideas about how the city is run and are hard bound to it. You know, those ideas require their own kind of retelling. They're, they require a, a full, a fuller understanding because we're, we're not isolated on this planet trying to solve these problems on our own. Absolutely. Well, Perry, it's a great book. I hope everyone buys it. And uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, thank you so much. And you can find Perry's book, Rebound, at the Spacing Store or at spacingstore.ca online. Now. We have a new issue of Spacing coming out, and it's all about growing. Urban farms, native plants, green spaces, and the like. For the issue, I sat down with Sundance Harvest Farm Director Cheyenne Sundance, all about the work she does in Downsview Park in North Toronto, growing food and teaching people to sustain themselves, their communities, and businesses through urban farming. Here's Cheyenne. Yeah, so when I was around, I would say, eight days, 
I graduated high school and was thinking about what to do next. And I traveled a bit, went to Cuba, went to the States, went to the West Coast in BC, and I saw a lot of farms. And I ended up working on a few farms and trying some things out. But the common theme I noticed, even across Canada or even in Ontario, was that none of the farms I could find were either paying their employees an ethical and fair wage, run by a person of color or a black person like me, or had the both and had like similar politics regarding what Sundance Harvest is doing today. So because I couldn't find really any examples of Sundance Harvest across Canada, I decided to start my own thing. And so you have uh, gardens in multiple locations at this point, right? So Sundance Harvest has one farm. We don't garden, we just do farming. Mm -hmm. And our farm is in Downsview Park. We have two greenhouses and a large piece of land there. And we're expanding next year the whole site. And so what what kinds of plants do you grow? So at the farm, we grow things seasonally. So we take July and August off, but from, I would say, October to February, we grow lots of winter greens like kale and chard and collard greens and lettuce and spinach. Mm -hmm. And we also grow things like mushrooms. And then for February up until, I would say, the end of June, we grow things like cucumbers, we grow Peas, squash, cabbage, tomatoes, peppers, and crops like that. We have the heated greenhouses, so we can get a tomato crop about two months earlier than other farmers in Ontario. And then can you tell me about growing in the margins, a sort of nonprofit mentorship program, I guess, would you call it? Yeah, so Growing in the Margins is a program that's about 10 weeks. This program is for youth aged 18 to 25 who are BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, persons of color. And this is for youth who would like to basically start their careers within agriculture. It's not really for any youth who'd like to garden or do this as a hobby because we do cover things like business and career stuff. And you learn things like composting, seed starting, harvest techniques, marketing, business planning, crop planning, and many of these youth actually have farms today that are located within Ontario, like Lucky Bug Farm, for example, Leah Frazier, she runs that, Rooted in Change, which is run by Lala, and that's located in Etobicoke, and there's a few others as well. And so when thinking about the reason that you created Sundance Harvest and the reason you're, you're running this Growing in the Margins mentorship program, it, it sounds to me like there, there's a diversity problem in, in urban farming. Yeah, so there's a diversity problem within agriculture as a whole. Mm -hmm. I would say urban farming tends to be more diverse because, you know, IPOC people are located predominantly more in cities because we have opportunities here that we don't have rurally. And also cultural communities and and a lot of our heritage is tied up into these cultural communities that are located in Toronto. So yeah, I would say 100% agriculture has a diversity problem. So much so that I'm actually a part of the National Farmers Union. I'm on the Ontario board of the union. And I decided that, look, we have a youth caucus and we have a women's caucus. Why not have a BIPOC caucus? Because these caucuses are like advisory committees across Canada. They do work regarding making sure that these marginalized groups within agriculture have funding, they have a place to talk, and they have a place to kind of meet and push forward the pendulum. And there wasn't one for farmers of color. And I was like, well, there's such a lack of diversity in agriculture. So I just pushed for one and the amendment will be debated at the national convention this fall. 
Awesome. Uh, what, what time in the fall? Just uh, for the timing of the magazine. I think it's like October, November. And if it's past the amendment at the conventions, that means that we'll have the BIPOC Advisory Committee in Canada. And I hopefully might be a president of it. Awesome. Okay. Uh, well, we'll look, we'll look for that. You, you've taught lessons in food justice, and I was just hoping for readers and listeners that you could uh, sort of unpack that concept, what that means to you. Yeah, so there's basically three terms that get thrown around a lot. So food security basically means access to food. It doesn't have to mean it's like culturally relevant or healthy food. It's just access to food, which is a very good thing in itself. Mm-hmm. So this is places like food banks, for example, like soup kitchens. Uh, another example is food justice. Food justice is having access to culturally relevant food and also having the barriers that prevent you from getting food, whether that means growing the food, saving the seed, or just like finding food that's relevant to your community. Those barriers are taken down. So Sundance Harvest, I would say, does more food justice, but we don't actually offer free food. We don't do that because there'd be no way to pay our employees $18 an hour doing so. We don't get subsidies from the government because we're not a nonprofit. We are a corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, what we do, we have a nonprofit arm called Growing in the Margins. And this nonprofit arm actually does the food justice work. So I would say Sundance Harvest doesn't do food justice work, but Growing in the Margins is the food justice epicenter of the work I do because it does provide that free education, which brings down the barriers that people face regarding getting access to food or growing their own food. And you said there was a a third term that gets thrown around. Yeah. So the third term is food sovereignty. So food sovereignty is ultimately the goal. The good example of what food sovereignty, in my opinion, looks like is this Instagram called Aggregarian Commons or something like that, Aggregarian Trust. And they basically get land across I think it's the States or something, or maybe the UK. And they keep that land on the land trust. And they give that land to the local community. They work with indigenous groups so that the land is not like bought by a developer and turned into like a McMansion. So food sovereignty is the people have the power, not corporations, not Monsanto, not Bayer. And they have the power to make decisions on how they grow food and where they grow food. And of course, it's land back as well. So food sovereignty is the ultimate goal. I would say, you know, I'm 24. I just got started like two years ago, mm-hmm. but hopefully one day I can strive more toward that. And uh, finally, I wanted to ask, in the face of a global pandemic and uh, especially in, in growing climate events from climate change, I just wonder how important is a diverse young urban farming movement becoming in the face of all of that? Yeah, young farmers are the most important regarding climate change and for the climate crisis. Because we are the ones that are going to be growing food in the future. Sure, there's monocrop culture from like soy, canola, and corn. But that is not has proven to be healthy or safe for the land and the waterways. So small farming is the future. And actually, small-scale farming, even when you're not looking at the West, is one of the biggest ways people farm globally. In places like India, there's a lot of small farming for cotton and grain. In other countries in Southeast Asia... Small farming is very prevalent because that's simply the way it's most efficient in those communities. So small farming in the West isn't as common as globally, but I do believe small farming is the future and the way to go. So young farmers are very, very important because we are more likely to actually be doing that small farming. So like maybe up to 10 acres, crop rotation, using cover crops, 
making sure we protect waterways and things like that. So I believe that young farmers tend to be more innovative because we're thinking about, okay, like, you know, 50 years down the line, climate will look drastically different. We need to be able to pivot and change faster than maybe our ancestors did. So, of course, young farmers are the future because it's our future that we're actually growing for. And you can find my Q&A with Cheyenne in the pages of the latest Spacing magazine, wherever fine magazines are sold. Well, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your community garden group, your cricket team, and anyone who tells you you're making too much noise hooping. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, or you can visit spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, go watch some of Rexdale's own Delano Banton's highlight reels. Cheers. Cheers.